Welcome to Dev Dive Episode 4. This week we have Andrew Bangle. Andrew's an environmental artist over at Treyarch and worked on the Blackout and Zombies modes in their most recent installment of Call of Duty Black Ops. So Andrew, how would you say you got your start in the uh, 3D environmental design world? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me, by the way. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I graduated from Purdue with uh, Larry back in 2011. Definitely, definitely not an art school by any means. So we pretty much had to teach ourselves everything we possibly could. Um, <laughs> but I think it, it kind of helped us on the problem solving front. They didn't teach us to be an artist, but they definitely taught us to, uh, you know, push yourself, kind of seek the problems and like find the solutions on your own more than anything. Um, but in 2011, I graduated work trying to find uh, animation positions, actually. I was, I was looking to be an animator back then um, and really trying to find this position. Wasn't getting any interviews, couldn't really come up with anything. And finally, after about a year of searching, uh, ended up taking a QA position out in San Francisco. Um, ended up working as a QA in San Francisco for about two and a half years. Um, and during that time, I was, you know, trying to bump shoulders with the art team as much as possible, trying to network with the art team as much as possible. Um, they, they were a pretty small group of guys at that studio. It was Kixai, which is a, a mobile browser company. So they didn't need a huge art team. Um, there's about four guys on that team and pretty much trying to interact with them and communicate with them every single day or every chance I got. And during my time there, while as a QA, I was taking on free projects from the team and offloading them whenever they got too crunched and too busy. Um, I would just take projects home at night whenever I could. You know, I'd work on a building or I'd work on a ship or work on a small asset on the side. Um, it was for a, a Battle Pirates game. Um, and even though I was doing it for free, it was helping me make my portfolio into a 3D art team um, and getting my art into the game as much as I possibly could. Uh, and fortunately, it did pay off. Uh, after about two and a half years of being a QA, one of the upper seniors ended up going to a new team, uh, and I got to actually fill in that open seat. They interviewed a couple people and decided to go internally with who they were going to bring on. Um, and then it was between me and another guy, and I got to take that position. So I finally got to move into the art team. It wasn't animation at the time. And uh, while I was still at Kickside doing 3D art, I was also practicing my animation. I was still kind of in this limbo of, I'm now finally on an art team, but it's not animation and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with that. Um, ultimately, even though I was practicing animation, I did start falling in love more and more with 3D modeling. And that's kind of where I've ran with and I've definitely loved it ever since. So I I'm probably for the long haul going to be sticking with 3D environments and 3D art to begin with. So. So you you stayed at Kixai for how long as a uh, 3D artist? I was there five and a half years in total. Um, so about three years of that was the art team. Yeah, just doing small assets. Um, it was a sprite-based game. So doing ships, doing uh, buildings, doing weapons, just different things for them for about three years. And where did you go from there? From there, I uh, was applying to places in LA. I knew... Um, at some point, I wanted to be in L.A. I also had a dream of being in movies and games in L.A., and I knew where that's the main part of the industry. That's where all the studios pretty much live. There's definitely studios around the world, around the country, but that's where pretty much the heart of the studios are. Um, so I was applying to a bunch of places, and I moved to a studio in L.A. called Pixamondo. It was a, a VFX house, um, and I got to do previs and finals for the VFX house there after, after leaving San Francisco. 
So that that was uh, for movies or for for games. That one was for movies, uh, okay. movies, commercials, um, TV shows, even amusement park rides doing uh, visualization for them setting them up. Um, and like the finals that you see in CG, like roller coasters these days where you're going through the roller coaster and all of a sudden there's a giant screen that pops up or something like that. We were working on all sorts of different things. So um, it, it definitely kept me busy. Half the work you actually got to see in finals and actually got to the real world. Uh, the other half of the work was all pre-visualization, previs, And so that's all that um, kind of storyboard plus work where the public doesn't get to see it, but it's a crucial part to get the movie or the, the show or whatever it is out the door. Sort of like concept art, but for the 3D world? Yeah, pretty much. It, it's there to kind of set the pacing for the shot. Um, so it, it, you know, you do your camera angles, you do your camera movements, you do kind of the pacing of the stuff on the screen. It's to get everything in there so when the director gets on stage with his crew, it's supposed to make that go much smoother. Because at that point, instead of going into that blind and you only have a storyboard as a director, you now have a storyboard and a pre-visualization uh, uh, cut together um, sequence. And so he can kind of look at it and be like, okay, we have it set up. That camera angle is going to be over here. It's going to do a whip pan this direction, and then it's going to cut here. Um, and he doesn't have to kind of like get on stage and do, instead of just that one shot, generally he'll do, oh, we want to do that shot. And then we want to take this angle. And then we want to take this angle. Because we're really not sure what we want. Um, so pre-visualization helps him get that before he ever gets on stage with those, you know, really expensive Hollywood actors that he doesn't really have the money or the time to kind of take hundreds of different angles. Mm -hmm. So So is there much of a, Oh, sorry. Is there much of a transition um, between game 3d modeling and, and uh, other mediums or is it all sort of the same work? So uh, I've definitely chatted with people about this in the past and it, the work itself is very similar. Um, you go from working in a, both of them are in Maya, both of them are in Max. The 3D world that I work in is pretty much the same, but the ideas behind it and then everything on top of it that comes with the work is completely different. And so what I mean is when I'm in games, I'm working on low poly budgets, I'm working on small textures and I'm making it as efficient as possible and I get it out the door. Um, and I have to worry about the game flow standards. In movies, game flow standards of efficiency and costs and poly counts kind of goes out the window. It's you need to make it look as good as you possibly can. So people can't tell the difference. Um, and so in the work, it becomes don't worry about budgets, make it look as perfect as possible. On top of that, the idea of a game getting, you know, oh, I get two weeks to make this asset. And I have this nice clean, like, you know, I get two days to block it out and I get it into the game. And then I get four days to, you know, model out the final and then I get four days to texture the final that kind of workflow and process behind the scenes where you're you're working with your team goes out the window and in movies it's I have this you have until Friday to get it done just get it into my hands and then you know come Wednesday they go I know I said Friday can you get it to me by the end of the day and so it's just one of these things that it's just as fast and as much as you can run as possible Yeah, the work-life balance in games was always something I missed while I was working at VFX. Um, It was awesome to kind of every single day in VFX, you walk in, you have no idea what you're going to work on. In games, especially knowing what the game is, 
there's only so many different things that that game that you're working on can hand you and be like, hey, we need a new one of said object, whether it be a ship or a gun or a weapon or whatever. In VFX, I can be working on a tank. I can work on a jet fighter. I can work on a skyscraper. I can work on a inside of a monster's mouth because the actors need to walk inside of it. Like <laughs> every Monday can be a different story. So it, it did have that. Um, kind of interesting vibe to it, but the work-life balance was ultimately what got me out of it. Gotcha. gotcha. So, Andrew, um, it feels so weird to call you Andrew. I'm going to call you Bagel. <laughs> All right, Bagel. You can call you me said whatever you, you feel like saying. Right, Bagel, you worked in movies uh, for a little bit, and I'm going to ask this question because it is a leading question. Do you have a movie credit? Is there a is, are you listed in the credits somewhere on a, on a movie? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I think actually up to this point, there's still only one because the rest of them that I'm in only say, and additional work by Pixamondo. Right. Uh, the one that I did work on, though, uh, that I think I do have a credit in is, uh, now I'm blanking on the name, Sky Hunter. There we go. They, the, right. The best right, movie right. of all time, Sky Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember Sky Hunter. <laughs> So for the people who don't know what Sky Hunter is, the, <laughs> the my a minority by far. Um, yeah, is, I mean, I'm, uh, the, everyone. I mean, it's a pretty popular mainstream media. A, yeah, it's it's right. definitely mainstream. Uh, it's I would a say eighty nine percent of people liked it. What eighty nine? Nine. Just if I had to, if I had to guess off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah I would say eighty nine. Yeah, I remember of that statistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. <laughs> 89% of the people liked it, and there's only 10 votes, and nine of us were Larry and me. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of them was Vivi because she fell asleep while watching it. <laughs> yeah, she, she had to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I've definitely worked on more than Sky Hunter, but most of the movies that uh, I have worked on, unfortunately, either... For whatever reason, um, I don't know how the casting of the credits goes. Uh, so if you look at my IMDb, I do have probably eight to 10 movies that are publicly out um, to my name. But for whatever the reason in the politics world of that credits, that rolling credits list, most of them for me just say, you know, attributes to Pixamondo. Like it doesn't actually list our names off. Um, oh, you worked on that. And I think you pulled it up on stream. So yeah, you can see the movies I've worked on. Yeah. <laughs> Venom, Crazy Rich Asians, Star Trek. These are all pretty big names. Yeah. Men as big as Sky Hunter, though. Yeah, Not Sky Hunter's Sky on Hunter. top. Sky Hunter's. 89% really of people like Sky Hunter. Yeah, like Crown Gem. <laughs> yeah, I worked on What's Not There. Uh, Westworld's there. Um, I think. The what Beacon? else is public? Uh, the Beacon I definitely worked on, which is a side project that my good buddy Chris Taylor directed. Um, and then the only one that I don't see up there that I, I do believe is public is uh, Goosebumps, the second one. Dun, 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 on dun, dun. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure um, I'm missing a bunch of other things there because I worked for Pixo about two years. Um, so there's probably a bunch of stuff on there that is missing but how how big of a deal is a movie credit to you uh my first one like... even, my first one even though it was sky hunter was a very big deal to me it was always my dream to kind of see my name going on a rolling credit um anymore it's 
it's a nice like kind of glamour like look at this it's really cool but once you see it on the screen you kind of see it and it goes away in like five seconds um so it's a nice to have but it's not it's not as big as your first one i think your first one kind of means a lot so are you yeah, in the credits I, I for black ops i am in the credits for black ops i think i am the second name that rolls down that screen for the art team we hey. for some reason decided that whoever put the credits together that all artists no matter what discipline were kind of lumped into one thing in the credits and then instead of priority or titles or anything like that they just went by alphabetical alphabetical so being andrew <laughs> bengal i had just previously started at the studio like eight months before the game rolled out and i got to be like the second person on the list <laughs> wait wait who beat you <laughs> what's that who beat you do you know oh i didn't know the name yeah <laughs> andrew angle <laughs> No, I think his name's Amir, but I can't remember his last name, and I, I don't know him. Uh, the studio's not terribly big, but it's about 350, and the art team is kind of split up among the studio. So, yeah, I wasn't sure who he was, but he beat me by one spot. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a, a question, Larry, or should I go? No, no, I was just clearing my throat. Sorry. Okay. No, you're trying to so, die over there. <laughs> just to bit. finish off the the sort of saga of questions about how you got started did you have any good advice to somebody aspiring to be a 3d artist or even an animator oh uh definitely um where to even begin though uh so definitely as much as we came out of purdue where you had to teach yourself everything possible no matter what school you go to there's always going to be something, whether it means your like specialization that you want to go into or something that your teachers don't teach well enough, not because they're bad teachers by any means. It's just when a teacher has to teach, you know, 20 students, 15 students, no matter what it is, if he can't specialize on you, you are going to have to teach yourself something. And so always having a drive, always working hard is it's it's. It's easy to say and it's easy to hear, but it is so critical. And I feel like most of the time it goes in one ear and out the other. Like you need to be teaching yourself and learning as much as you humanly possibly can, which kind of goes into the other thing of if you want to do this as a career, know how competitive it is and be sure you want to do this as a career. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I've even had days where I'm in the industry now and the biggest hump for a new artist is to actually get that first job. I've already gotten past that. And I still ask myself, like, is this more of a hobby or is this really what I want to do? Because it, it kind of will stress you out. Um, I was just having a conversation with one of our, our producers the other day. And she, you know, she understood how competitive it was per se, but she, I guess, didn't quite grasp it because she, she flat out asked us. She walked in and she's like, oh, you guys did these really cool things. And you guys did that really cool thing. And you guys knew how to do that too. Is it extremely competitive to get your position? And we kind of had a discussion where it's, you know, it's probably without knowing numbers, it's humanly possible to say every seat in the industry has 500 people that want it. Um, yeah, there's a lot of us that really want the job and there's not many seats, unfortunately. So just uh, definitely know you want to do the job. Definitely make sure it's more of a career than a hobby because just doing a different job and doing art as a hobby, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's actually a really cool thing. But if you really want to do the job, just work your butt off and learn as much as possible. Um, just to build off of that thought, how so 
500 people for every for any seat within within the industry that you're talking about um 500 people wanting that that position you know there are a lot of hopefuls there are a lot of people who think they want that job in the industry how many would you say are qualified professionals that would be like you know at your level or higher gutting for that position that's a great question um Again, I'm only guesstimating um, mm-hmm. based on, you know, if I if we have to do interviews for a position or something like that, you'll you'll get that 500 resumes dropped into somebody's inbox. But how many are qualified? Mm-hmm. Maybe the top 200, possibly, I right. guess. That's still a lot. Um, right. It's still a lot. And 200, 300 are all hopeful. qualified. Yeah. Definitely get there, but 200 qualified. Yeah. Yeah. Qualified. So individuals getting for a single position yeah yep. um it's, it's competitive um and, and i mean you definitely probably know it just working on um with external artists there's so yeah. many good artists out there it's yeah it's it's crazy so it, i love what i do but it's definitely one of those things you have to you have to have a reality check with yourself is this the life that i want to be in or is this more of a hobby so um, it's kind of interesting what, um, for Larry, though, because you you actually reach out to people most of the time, don't you, Larry? I do. I do have it is it's a uh, it's a bit of a flip. I I actually get to go out and look at artists and say, hey, you're really good. You have a lot of skill and talent. Would you like to work with with us? Um, and it's it's interesting. Uh, because there are a lot of very talented people out there and most of the time they're already taken <laughs> like <laughs> they, like there are a lot of like I'm like oh that's a you know that's really you know their artwork's really solid they're really good and I'll take it to an artist they're like yeah they're really good like let's you know let's do a little digging let's do our research and like yeah they're they're a senior artist at a studio they're a founder <laughs> of their own studio they're working with this other studio and I'm like so <laughs> there are yeah there are a lot of a lot of very good talented people out there um yeah. that get snapped up pretty quickly it's kind of funny in the most nightmarish way possible um that to get that first job in the industry is so insanely hard you are like going door to door it feels like emailing every single person humanly possible trying to get your first gig and then nobody wants to pretty much talk to you at that point and you find that first gig and you get like a year of experience And it is kind of crazy where you go from never being able to get anybody's ear to now that you're in the industry, people are emailing you once a week, once every other week going, hey, are you open for work? Hey, are you open for work? And it's like, well, if you would have talked to me like a year ago, I would have been loving to come work for you. (laughs) Um, and, And it's great that I guess once you are in the industry, you can kind of, you can never breathe easy, but you can breathe easier, I guess that it is kind of this, I guess, I mean, it kind of goes back to networking and like definitely being great with the teams that you are with, definitely being a great employee because once you're in, as long as you do good work and people recognize that, you should be able to keep finding work. And that that's awesome, but it's, it's really hard to start, I guess, yeah. What? Not to get, I guess not to get is, too off a- topic. Um, if, if, if this is... A transitional can i go first but if it's not you can go first Larry. for what a transitional topic because i wanted to t- ask you something actually 
Oh me. Oh, I was going to I was going to follow up with Bagels doing like a hypothetical um talking about what because unfortunately looking for a new looking for your break mm-hmm. you have to you have to impress people with your work in terms of skill and craft. Mm-hmm. But after you get your break, you said that there are other skills, you know, being a good worker, having building those strong relationships and those require a different set of skills. Yeah, I was gonna kind of de- I was gonna kind of delve into both of those uh, from your perspective uh, as an artist, trying to get trying to get noticed and then maintaining maintaining those relationships. But what? Yeah, were I think you... that I think that would uh, meld well with what I say. So you can uh, you can go ahead. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So bagel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like you know, as an artist trying to get you know trying to get some recognition, trying to get you know a little traction. What do you think? are some of the what like maybe top three tips um to to give to somebody say i'm a 3d artist and i want to and i come to you and i'm like hey i want to impress people with my portfolio with my work to get my big break what would you give as tips to that and then the follow-up question is once they get their break what would you suggest like okay now that you've impressed people and shown you can do the work how do you get people to keep coming back to you to, to continue working yeah uh so definitely to to earn that break to get that break um there's there's definitely i actually had a funny conversation with my senior the other day where when you're trying to get the job and when you do it as a hobby or whatever but when you're trying to get that first job you are trying to be as good of an artist as possible you are trying to be an artist and i do mean artist i put stuff on a screen i make it visually appealing everything about it is very artistic and quality mm-hmm. when you're in the industry when people ask what you do we were having this conversation that we're no longer artists we are production artists and that is a key distinction of when you don't work with a team you are making something look great on screen when you are on a team mm-hmm. a production artist has to make something look great on screen but has to make it look great on screen with a timeline with a team uh, <laughs> it, it's great that you want to keep working on that piece for another two weeks sorry you don't have the time you need to get that piece done now and it needs to be done on time and it has to be done with quality and it has to be efficient like you're now working for somebody else you're not working for yourself um, and, and it's kind of one of those things that you do have to learn. But I guess if I had to give some tips to somebody trying to be in it, mm-hmm. um, it, it's great to kind of focus on 3D art in a general sense and maybe do that a little bit. But I think it's also even better to really kind of commit to one aspect. And so if you want to be a 3D artist, but you specifically want to be a vehicle artist, Commit to being a vehicle artist. Commit to learning everything that it takes to be a vehicle artist, whether it be, you know, I only get to work on this vehicle with eight 2K maps and I have to work within a poly budget of 25,000 and I have to, you know, I have to learn how to make a vehicle with decals and like different layered maps and stuff like that. You need to learn vehicles and need to know everything about vehicles and work on different types of vehicles. Same with a character artist. If you want to be a character artist, it's great if you have, say, a bike on your portfolio. But make sure your portfolio is characters and characters and characters and you show your depth among characters. Mm. Um, Same for environment. If you're going to do environment art, it's great to have a character here and there, a vehicle, a weapon. But I want to see a bunch of environments or one really good environment or just showing depth to the fact that you can work on environments. Mm. Um, I think way too often we see 3D artists that 
they want to apply as an environment artist or the character artist or a weapon artist, but you look at their portfolio and it, it's pretty solid work all over the place. But then we look at somebody else's and it's great work on just environment art. And so you did awesome work on your portfolio, but why would we take you over this person who focused on the position they just applied for and they showed a great depth to it? Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things that definitely keep track of what you want to do and then apply with those positions in mind. Um, gotcha. On top of that, always keep up with technology and what the newest programs are and what the newest techniques are. Um, if you know you want to be an environment artist, and you do want to show that you can uh, be worth it on that team. One of the good things that everybody and current teams are talking about is it's awesome if you can be an environmentalist and you can do all these amazing pieces. But the one thing that is kind of sneaking up on us right now is Houdini. If you can do Houdini as an environment artist, not all of us can and most of us can't. But if you can learn that, it's kind of keeping up with the technology. And if you can stay ahead of the technology, Say you then apply to an environment artist position and you have Houdini as a knowledge that you can say, I know how to do that. You will be grabbed so fast as a teammate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's one of those things like, you know, two years ago, it was, do you know, substance designer? And, you know, we all had to learn substance designer. That was great. But now everybody knows substance designer. Can you show people that, you know, Houdini before everybody else? Like you can do that and then you'll immediately join a team. I promise. Nice, nice, nice. Would you so going back a little bit, you recommended um focusing on one style of art for when you're applying for specific ah, specific positions. Would you recommend having separate portfolios for different sorts of disciplines, like environmental character, or if you were to focus on those, or would you just say just focus on one thing? I would say if you want to have the the multiple on your portfolio site um site being you know your overarching site mm-hmm. uh, if you can separate them into different um whether it be a tab or a category or something so when i jump on there and i go hey i want to look at his environment art and i see a bunch of pieces but i see a tab that says environment art i can click it and it just sorts it um if you are applying for that position and you don't have a specific portfolio give us the option to just look at what we're looking for because okay. that would I think future employers would love that. And then going back to you, Larry, um, when you said that you reach out to people, how do you find most people when you're looking for an artist? Like, what do you go through? Oh, um, I go through a couple of different channels. Um, Most of the time, I will look at uh, ArtStation because that's a really good aggregate. Uh, But there are a couple, you know... um, a couple other sites that are actually pretty good as well that uh, that will focus on other kinds of art and artists. Um, Behance for visual design. Uh, uh, for uh, I, I actually use Instagram to find comic artists. <laughs> um, let's see here. Uh, who, I didn't know we're using Instagram that much to post art. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, it's actually got a lot. Uh, like, also, uh, um, there's a, a pretty good a pretty good community of um, like prop artists. Uh, I'm trying like miniatures and like real world painting. Um, oh yeah, mm-hmm. 
right there. Uh, but yeah, comic artists use it a lot uh, as well. Uh, I go through a bunch of different channels, but ArtStation is usually the one that I go through just because it was kind of the one. It's a really good aggregate. Two, it has a that's the what I would potentially call the purpose behind it. That was the intention behind it to be a professional artist place that you could go through. Um, so I'll search through that and I'll find a couple of candidates there. But most of the time, actually, and this is this is, goes back to Bagel talking about making relationships and networking, I will just ask other artists and I go, hey, who do you follow? Hey, who, whose work do you constantly look at? Where, like, can you send me a link or something like that? Um, because artists follow other good, like, good artists will follow other good artists. Definitely. Like, it's like a so I have ArtStation on my second monitor every day. Yeah, I mean, I look at ArtStation every day as well. I'm, I'm not an artist, but, you know, being in that world, like, yeah. I, I constantly, and I can guarantee you, if I went to one of the illustrators at work and I said, hey, um, five illustrators to do this kind of project go and they'll be like oh yeah there's this guy and this guy and this this woman or this person over here they'll like that like i mean they'll be able to give if you were able to to give them some specifics i need you know i need a 3d artist uh who does you know hard surface modeling and focuses on spaceships pretty sure i could talk to bagel i'm pretty sure i could talk to the artists the 3d artists at work and they'll give me a list of 10 15 artists just like that like it was nothing um but yeah that's that's primarily where i go the there is also a second because that is very much looking for specialists for individuals who can really work on those key pieces those um those big uh those big set pieces hero pieces there you go i was trying to think of that and then there's the difference like bagel was saying there is there's production um there's this production aspect that you have to take into mind into account i need someone who can make 500 models uh 500 asset models in three months uh an individual person might not <laughs> might not be able to do that so then you start that looking for insanely difficult <laughs> right um uh, so that's when you start looking for people like you know uh your contacts at other big studios um that focus on art production um outsourcing studios you know i have a couple friends uh at Studios like Starfall or Seaview is actually a studio that I I'm I'm looking at right now for a project at work potentially. Um, so that it's good to also know those like the gamut. You have your individuals who can work really well and these really creative, artful pieces, and then you have those people who can, those teams that can just pump that shit out and just get it going to a good quality, um, and a good turnaround time. Outsourcing saviors. Outsourcing, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, that's right. that's a topic to go over sometime. <laughs> we, we spent a we spent a good portion of time talking about this specific part, so that's that's good. Um, but going back to sort of the main meat of the day, um, Black Ops. So I had something yeah. written down here. Um, Black Ops. What is that game? <laughs> never heard of it. Um, so is there anything? Just to break the ice, is there anything funny that happened during the development of Black Ops that you you remember that sticks out in your mind? Yeah. Um, 
there's a couple that I wish I could talk about, but there's definitely one that I can talk about, which was so entertaining when it happened. Um, every studio probably has their nice little glitches that happen with their programs that they run. So the engine that you actually play with. Um, and one of them, when I was learning Radiant, which is what we use at uh, Treyarch, I was learning that I could run around a map and I could hot swap my, my fixes, my changes into the map while I'm playing the game. So I was running around, at the time I was running around Blackout, um, our Battle Royale mode, uh, running around that and I was running around the towns and I, I was like, oh, I need to, you know, fix this collision mesh on this railing over here. It was like something super small. Um, and the previous day I just learned that I could hot swap and I was like, okay, and I'll just hot swap it really quick. And I hit hot swap and I was like, cool. And I looked at the railing and everything was normal and I was fine. Um, what I didn't know at the time, because I was just learning about this key, was that if you hot swap too many times, the engine doesn't necessarily break, but it has fun and just decides that it's done with you. And so it just starts changing out assets randomly. So, you know, this gun over on the ground might become a helmet. And even though it acts like a gun and you can pick it up like a gun, it now looks like a helmet. Um, or crazier things happen where, you know, this house becomes a tank. There used to be a house there, it's now a tank. Um, those sorts of changes were just things that I kind of laughed about and I was I moved on my way. Uh, one of them though, I, I did a hot swap and I walked inside the building and the uh, blades on the ceiling fan turned to people's legs. Oh no. Um, so <laughs> people's legs were just spinning around the <laughs> spinning around the ceiling. That one was oh, a little Lord. weird. Um, alternatively, the helicopter that we had in blackout I had one time where the blades of the helicopter turned into AC-130s. Um, and so you got into the helicopter and you had giant planes spinning around the blades. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so just random things like that. Oh, oh, there was one that scared me half to death. There is a train tunnel in Blackout that I worked on. Um, yeah. And at one point I did a hot swap and I ran into the train tunnel to check my changes. And all of the railings of the actual train railway got changed to zombie heads. <laughs> so I ran into there and immediately ran back the other direction. <laughs> Survival horror. Yeah, oh, so man. Hot swap is an amazing thing, but it breaks so in, in the funniest ways possible. <laughs> right. So transitioning. Um, oh, okay. Go ahead, Larry. I was actually going to ask so beyond uh beyond black ops like I I know I know uh during the development you were able to participate in um you know in in uh in-house testing and and stuff like that. Yeah. Um do you have any like really favorite stories of of you know maybe something while testing that you like had a direct impact on the team? There's one story in particular that I'm thinking about but oh, I no. I don't want to I want to I see might need the... you to spoil it because I can't think of something right now. Oh well, the uh, what was it? The um, I forget what it's called. The radar, the radar thing. You found out that you could attach that radar thing to things. Oh, that was great. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So the I think it was like the week before Blackout went out. Um, our team was running around, and there is a sensor dart in the game. The sensor dart uh, can pretty much attach to any physical object, and it pretty much just pings a radius of enemies in the circle. Um, and the great thing about it, great in big quotations, 
is it doesn't care about verticality. So anything in that column of game space, it'll show a person in. And so we were running around and we attached it to a helicopter. And so three of us on the ground were running around with our, our weapons behind trees. The circle was ending pretty much on this like valley hillside. And we had our fourth guy with a sensor dart attached to him up in a helicopter way above the match, just flying around and just pinging people on the map the entire time. It was pretty much giving us free map packs, which was awesome. UAV activated. <laughs> you can also attach it to um, the little RC cars. The RC cars that uh, run around and can just honk and be really annoying. Um, oh, and pretty much sit below the grass line. And so on valley hills and things like that, people can hear the RC car and they can hear the sensor dart because both of them have very distinct noises, but it's really hard to see. And so you just run around the enemy team being really obnoxious while the other members of your team just mow them down. <laughs> Did that get changed or is that still in the game? The verticality? Uh, both of them are still in the game. The thing that got changed <laughs> is the sensor dart used to last 15 minutes. Oh, God. It now lasts two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little more fair. Wow, 15 yeah. minutes. Damn. Yeah, it used to last 15 or if the circle collapsed over it. Um, but yeah, anymore, they decided because of reasons that that was way too broken. <laughs> <laughs> so going, going through that, um, what are some of the things behind game dev that consumers, somebody like me, probably don't, doesn't realize takes like a lot of effort or, or a lot of behind the scenes work? Oh, that's great. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is how long it actually takes to pipe something through the pipeline, whether it be because of politics, whether it be because of patching. Um, there, it, it's something that I think a lot of people in the industry harp on a lot. So I don't want to sound too much like a broken record, but mm. it, it kind of, it doesn't anger me. It breaks my heart when I, I get on Reddit every day and I see, Oh, Treyarch doesn't care about us. They don't listen to us, blah, 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 blah. And like, I, especially when the game came out, I had Reddit open every day. Um, and I am not an exception to the rule. Pretty much our entire studio had Reddit open every day. And so when you see things like Treyarch doesn't care and Treyarch doesn't listen, it's one of those things where it's like, we, we do listen. We can't just say it. We can't just post it on Reddit and be like, no, I hear you. <laughs> because there's, there, there's, certain, um, you know, there's certain outlets for that to actually be spoken. Generally, we have PR people who handle that. Um, but it, yeah, it just, it's one of those things that we do hear what people want. Um, and just because you think it's an obvious fix in the gaming world that it needs to happen and it hasn't happened and why don't they care about us, there's generally probably a good reason or there's at least a reason behind almost every single time. Hopefully it's a good reason every single time. Sometimes it's money related. Unfortunately, you know, people at the end of the day do have to make their paychecks and bigger studios will sometimes just make a paycheck for a reason you don't like. Um, but other times it could quite possibly be the fact that we have to wait for a patch day. You know, there might be what you consider a small bug that requires a giant change. And that giant change can't come until a patch day. It can't come in a hot fix. Um, and I think one of those things that maybe an average consumer doesn't understand is Games like Fortnite can patch every day because they're in um, they're in beta still. They and they also are on their own um, platform, so they can patch for free whenever they want, or relatively free for whenever they want. 
games like AAA studio games, whether it be Black Ops or another game, uh, they have to pay for their patches, their major patches. Um, so we have to go to Sony. We have to go to Microsoft. We have to go to, um, fortunately not on PC because we, we own um, Blizzard.com, but we have to go to these major publishing studios and be like, hey, we have a patch and our title update goes out on this day and we pay for that title update that day. It's not a, oh, there's that minor bug that you guys really find annoying, but we can't patch it just for that one bug. I'm sorry, guys. Um, and I, I think it's one of those things where, yeah, it just it kind of breaks my heart when they yell and say we're not listening and we really want to be. But there's reasons behind why we haven't fixed it the day that you want it fixed. So, yeah, I guess that's a long winded answer on that. It seems to be a common thread in, in a lot of game devs that we've talked to where they they struggle with um, a lot of the negative negativity from the community uh, because mm-hmm. they want to let people know that they they do care and they do listen, but it, it's yeah. not exactly always that simple. So it's good to We're hear. We're in this industry because we love gaming with you guys, and especially the game that we work on, we want to be as good as possible. We don't work on this game and put every hour of our life into this game and then sit here behind our desks evilly laughing that, ha ha it's not as good <laughs> as you want it to be. We want it to be as good as you want it to be. <laughs> so, yeah. Anything to uh, add to that, Larry? Uh, no, I'm no, not really. I, I think that is a that is a common trend uh, among like like Bagel said, like you said, it is a common trend. Um, each studio has its own reasons. Um, as <laughs> I think sometimes it's not so much that it's not so much that people uh, for me, I'll speak for me. It's not so much that I that I don't want people to question. I think that you should always, always, always hold the people that you are following the studio, the 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 game that that you play and and want to improve on. Like you should always keep them accountable. You should always put that out there. I think what the big problem is is the maybe the delivery behind it. Um, I'm trying to think of something that I saw recently. Oh, it was a Reddit post about, or it was a board post about the new. Uh, the new matchmaking system, and the, the in the first, the second, I think there's the paragraph, and then the second second is like, if you don't respond to this, I will, we will consider it a slap in our face. And I was like, oh wow, okay. <laughs> like, I mean, <laughs> maybe what you're asking, you have to remember, maybe what you're asking is very complex. There might be a lot, there might be a lot behind of that, behind that question. And also, you have to remember that. This is, you know, for Riot, it's a huge studio. And probably, I, I'm not making an excuse. I'm just saying, like, another possibility. It, they, could, they could just not be listening to you. Uh, no one really goes on the boards anymore for reasons that I can get to in some other time. But also, like, just, just saying, maybe they're really busy trying to fix the problem that you're seeing. You know? <laughs> like, it's... And Bagel hit on it. Um, and and really nailed it is the games, the games that people work on, they want to make it as good as it can possibly be. They want to to make sure that you have fun because they have fun working on it. They make it's a labor of love in most instances. That's why uh, whenever they were talking about, it's very stressful to get into the industry. Yeah, but you want to be there. You want to do it because it is, because it is a labor of love. You know. Um, 
I think the delivery can go a long way asking the question, hey, I see this problem. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, dissent. There's a lot of concern. There's a lot of people out there saying this is a problem and nothing's being done from our point of view, nothing's being done. What about your point of view? Ask the question, why, why have we not seen this go through? Uh, what are the steps that, you know, what, like, do you think it's a problem? What, like, can you share your thoughts with us instead of taking the, instead of taking the stance of they don't care, they're not listening, you know, uh, I would equate it not to be mean or to be little. Um, any of the players out there getting on the boards and like voicing your opinion and, and saying this sucks, this is dumb. That's, that's a way of going, I'm in pain. I don't like this. I want it to be better. And we understand that. But you have to remember, if someone came up to you, regardless of what age you are, I'm, I'm 30, I'm in my 30s. Um, and if someone came up on the boards and said, this is fucking dumb, this is bullshit, you don't listen to us, you don't care about us, this is an easy fix, this is all this, the first thing that comes into my mind is, well, you're acting rather immature. So I like that is a very immature stance. And I know that has nothing to do with age. There are plenty of 30 year olds that I interact with that do the same thing, but it's, it's, it's immaturity coming out. What you're really saying is I don't like this. I would like to be heard, but the way you're, the way you're presenting it isn't really causing me to treat it with the, the seriousness that it might deserve. To me, it sounds like a petulant child or someone like, you know, someone who is immature, who doesn't understand or isn't empathetic. That's actually really, that's really what it is. It just sounds like you're unempathetic. You don't give a shit about the other person. And in modern society or even in polite society, the idea kind of stands is if you don't give a shit about me, why should I give a shit about you? That's like an instant human reaction. Um, and it, there's a lot of people out there and a lot of game devs who have that reaction and they have to work through it. And it's easy to work through that first time. It's easy to work through it for that 10th time. But that 100th, that 200th, that 1,000th time, it gets, you know, it gets really hard uh, for them. So it, it's a really, that's, that's a lot of ramblings and stuff like that. But that's what I would add is just remember there are people on the other end. Remember that those people want to make your experience and want to make your, the, the game that you both are working and loving the best that it can be. There are larger forces at work sometimes. And sometimes the best thing that you can do is just ask a simple question and, and remember that there is someone on the other end of that question. Um, and you might, you might see a big difference in how it's approached. So that's the only thing I would add, I guess, to that. I definitely have a lot of respect for PR people that specifically interact with social media because it's yeah. a hard job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially I mean, when they are told the patches, but they don't get to actually implement them at the time they want. So they have to interact and answer questions to the public, but they don't actually get to implement them because somebody else. Have, yeah, they have no control over it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm coming off of what Larry said, um, I think it's very easy in human nature to focus on negativity. Um, a lot of creators express the sentiment where they can get a thousand positive comments or a thousand positive responses to something they do, but 
even a couple negative ones can really they really focus on those and they hone in those and some of them can be useful for improving your product whatever it may be um a tv show a podcast a video game uh but some of them just not everyone likes everything and some people aren't okay with that um some people will just spread that negativity for any particular reason even if it's unrelated to the thing in question um yeah it's so easy to focus on that as any sort of creator um and and I imagine it's 10 times worse when instead of a very small percentage, a, a larger percentage, like going from 1% to maybe even 20% of people um, on boards are giving you a very hard time for something that isn't even in under your control. Uh, I imagine it's very painful. Um, I know, uh, I, I know normally we don't. Yeah. I normally don't, we don't normally address questions through, through this first half, but I think support Karthus is, is, Asking some questions that would be some good directly contributing to this specifically. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Bagel, did you want to? Did did you did you see the the questions that he was putting up there? Uh, I was trying to keep up with them. Which one specifically did you want to answer? So it's basically the, the a couple of points to address is uh, do you think um, do you think that like studios should communicate more openly with community or like is there specific reasons that you can't do that? And then the other one is a lot of times the the idea of like we listen um, and we're responding to you, but it just sounds like empty PR. Um, that like it, it's kind of like it feels like a cop out. So maybe talking about like why it comes off that way sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and then and then the last one is like facing negative feedback with more open communication. Do you think that would be helpful, or do you think that like or have you seen experience or have you experienced it to just not like to make it worse. So the big three questions is more open communication. Do you think uh, more open communication? Um, and what are some of the reasons why like a purely open communication system wouldn't work? Uh, yeah, it becomes a little tricky. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll start there. Yeah, I've definitely. I guess being on Black Ops Four, um, this is easily the highest profile project I've been on. Um, and so, you know, you have a giant community that is very public and outspoken about their product that they love. Um, and they have some very strong feelings towards the product that they love. Uh, especially, I think it becomes one of those things where um, Treyarch, uh, Sledgehammer, Infinity Ward, we all work under the same umbrella. We all work for Activision, but we all work on different Call of Duty games. So even though we're all Activision, we get pitted against each other from our fans, which is kind of an interesting thing. So it becomes one of those, well, you guys did this, but you didn't do it near as good as they did it. And the, the negative feedback almost comes from, you know, you being not as good as your big brother. <laughs> and so it becomes one of those interesting things. Well, we try to be as open as possible with our fans as much as we possibly can. But I do think 100% open communication can backfire. Um, I, I think our PR team tries to be as open to communicate with people on social media, whether it be Twitter or Reddit or anything. They're definitely, there's a couple of people on our studio completely devoted to reading Reddit. Um, and there's, you know, thousands of posts every day. Uh, they try to read as much as they can and they try to respond to what they can. The problem being is almost every time one of them responds to a post, it becomes law. It becomes like historical 
accuracy that they said at this one time and you guys didn't follow through. Um, so just because, you know, we see a post where it's like, oh, you know, this bug has been in here for two weeks and we really want it gone. And say he goes on there and says, all right, we hear you. We want it gone too. We're going to do our best to fix it. And that's all he says. We're going to do our best to fix it. This has happened in the past where he goes, we, we hear you. We want to do our best. But it's a really complicated bug that we, for some reason, it might be the smallest thing in the world. It might be I get flashbanged and something happens and I reload my gun and I get kicked off the server. Like it might be something really random, um, but it might have some larger implication that's really hard to fix. When he says we hear you and we want to do our best to fix it and it's not fixed in the next week, next two weeks, people start pretty much reposting that going, you said it was going to be fixed. You said it was going to be fixed. You said it was going to be fixed. And they get angry at that. And it's not one of those things that, yes, he said it was going to be fixed. And we just said, eh, it's too hard. Let's ignore it. There's probably people still working on it. And it might just be this really weird, intricate thing that is hard to solve for some reason. Um, and so I, I do think open communication is great. And I think there's even times where a, a company like ours or a company uh, like another could be more open at times, but I do think they're very careful with what they say because anything they say becomes the community's fact and law. Like you said this, where is it? And so, and, and it almost doesn't allow a company to backtrack. The moment we say it and we don't do something we say, it apparently means we're lying to you. And maybe that's not necessarily true. Maybe we tried it like we, you know, concussion grenades hold on way too long. Well, we tried to balance them backwards and we said we were going to do it, but then we realized for whatever play reason, gameplay reason, that makes this broken and this becomes overpowered. And we decide ultimately that's not a good idea. And so we decide to not do that. And then we have, you know, 50,000 tweets or messages about the fact that you said you were going to do this. And we did test it and it didn't work out for the game. Um, so then you have 50,000 people mad at you for it. <laughs> so it becomes one of those things that you have to be very careful with what you say. Um, and it, it can backfire really quickly. Yeah. Using, um, using league as an example, cause that's the game that I'm most familiar with. Um, even from my standpoint and I'm not in the industry at all, but I can see people on Reddit who are still posting, um, almost weekly, if not more often where it says six years ago, Riot Posted or promised this. And it never happened. <laughs> like when yeah. is when is um death recap going to be fixed or when is blank going to come out? Um yeah. and more often than not, the the post that they use as a reference is like some unrelated riot guy saying that is something that we're working on or that that does seem cool. We should well we might try it or something like that. Where it's not even yeah. it's not an official um pr person it's not an announcement it's just one guy in a thread saying something that not a, not a promise just a just a reference and it's yeah i imagine that's one of the negatives of being more open whereas the positives might be better for the community but the negatives seem to outweigh the positives most of this in most situations that i see um, yeah. I love that support Karthus quoted Bo Burnham, by the yeah. way. That was say, I was going to call <laughs> that out, too. Yes, that is one. That's one of my favorite comedy stand-ups. Yeah. I watch that almost every week. Um, the second part, though, and I think, I think Bagel touched on it and actually really put a good point to it, 
is we hear you. We're going to see if we can fix it. The frag, like the frag thing. You hold on to frags for too long, or stun, or concussions. Okay, yeah. Like, hey, we did it. We found out that it's not healthy for the game. We found out it's not, it's not actually good for the game. At that point, it then becomes an opinion. Okay, well, me as the consumer, I say it's still healthy for the game. From my single point of view, from my, from my experience, I think it's better for the game. Whereas the studio has to look at everyone's experience. Mm -hmm. So your experience may not be like maybe improved, but 10,000 people's experience and ratio will not be improved. It'll actually be harmed. Um, and in that instance, you know, the needs of the few kind of idea. Um, for instance, one of the things that pissed me off so much, it actually made me rage off League for a little bit. The, I, I, I honestly hate LeBlanc. Like, I, <laughs> I hate her kit. I hate playing against her. I feel it is oppressive. I, you know, I don't actually like playing against her. And they tried an update. Didn't work out. Didn't hit the goals, but they kept it. And then they reverted it. And to me, I went, that is, like, my experience has now been damaged. I hate playing against LeBlancs. I think that it is unhealthy for the game. But that's me as a player. Talking and listening to the live gameplay guys, they, you know, they did research. They, they did their job. They looked into it. And they're like, actually, by keeping the change, it is more harmful to the gameplay experience and the game health overall than it would be to leave it in there or to, to revert the change. And so like, like that's, that's, that's a major issue is sometimes it's the needs of the many versus the needs of the few. And then sometimes it is an opinion that, that is being discussed. And that's hardly, you hardly ever get a, a good answer out of that. You know, like yeah. that, that's, that's not, that's, that's a debate. That's not, it becomes one of those tricky things when yeah. PR posts on the Reddit forum going, well, we tried it and we think you're wrong. <laughs> that's yeah. not how you worded the post. Yeah. But that's what they read. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a point and that's hard. So more open communication, I think. And, and I think part of that goes to trust. If you, if you trust the studio that you're, you're communicating with and they say, Hey, we tried it. It didn't work out. It's it, it actually would be worse and you trust them, then you're probably gonna be more likely to go, okay, well, I you know, fine. They tried it. I'm not happy about it, but I trust that they tried it and I trust that they're doing the right thing for not just to me, but for the game, the community, the environment, uh, in general. But if you don't trust them, that that'll never change. And that's something that's really important to studios and it's very hard. Um, it's very, very hard because you don't have to just get one person to trust you, which is which is hard enough as is. You have to get a hundred million, two hundred million, yeah. a billion people to trust you. Do you know how hard that would be <laughs> to have a hundred million people trust you? Just get ten people to trust you implicitly <laughs> and keep that trust at the level. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> So, um, but then going down to the second, like going through, oh, anyone else have something to add to add on uh, to that? Yeah, real quick. Something that I wanted yeah, to dude, bounce yeah. off of um, what you were saying about the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. Um, yeah. Something that 
a lot of people who aren't maybe as familiar with Reddit might not realize is um, even with a very large Reddit community being probably one of the largest communities online to talk about that game. So our League of Legends or our uh, Black Ops, they have definitely one of the largest user bases. But mm-hmm. even still, the people who are commenting and the people who are making posts and even the people yeah. who have Reddit accounts make up such a vast minority of the overall people actually viewing the content or actually mm-hmm. playing the game. Um, that's actually astounding. A, a, a metric that I know off the top of my head is less than 1% all Reddit traffic comes from users who have accounts. So, and I think, I don't even know what the percentage, I'm, I'm willing to bet that it's less than 0.001% of all content like wow. of all of all users actually contribute to content on Reddit. So you're getting such a even though it seems vast and there are millions of people who post on Reddit, that's such a small concentration of the actual people who are viewing the content or even the people who are um playing the game. Not everyone is on Reddit. Not everyone is uh even on the internet in in a great standard for league a lot of people I know they just play league. They don't go to Reddit. They don't go to Twitter. They use their Facebook once a week, that kind of thing. <laughs> so it, it's yeah. something that a lot of people don't realize that maybe your post saying, wow, earth sucks. Even though it gets 4,000 upvotes or however many, oh, upvotes, that's not, <laughs> that's not necessarily the definitive community opinion. Um, and it, it, it's worse on a site like Reddit because Reddit is naturally, and um, I don't know if it's designed to be this way, but it, it, it is a consequence of how the site is designed. It's an echo chamber um, because negative or opinions that aren't. If, even if you have two opinions and one of them is slightly more dominant, than the other, the way that Reddit functions is they will silence the other opinion. So if you ever go to a Reddit and you say, man, people really think this one way on reddit even though i know that there's people out there who don't think of that who don't think mm-hmm. like that so either po- political or um game news or anything like that it's because the way reddit functions it naturally silences other people's opinions which is super unfortunate for pretty much every sort of discussion that goes on it's a system meant to discourage um low effort or low there's a there's a way to say this it's a system meant to discourage trolls bad content and stuff like that but the way it ends up working is it just it discourages less popular opinions which isn't really what you want out of a discussion form yeah thank you thank you sorry (laughs) larry you can Uh, uh you can yeah, continue. The, so the so the second part is um so we we went over the idea of like open communication with communities um and it is uh to follow up to that it's like it's easy to say uh, for a studio to say oh we listen um and I'll read it directly but is there any avenue of communicating stuff to the community that doesn't sound like empty PR so talking about how studios communicate to the communities um about things like that that just come off as empty pr uh 
open communication, do we feel that at the, you feel that it that actually comes off as empty PR, or do you think that it comes off as as a good? I think we kind of discussed that though. Um, does it come off as genuine communication? And then we'll actually we'll lump the second part into it. Is like, do you in your experience have you seen open genuine communication um, help the situation uh, with community or harm it? Actually, just makes it worse. Mm. It's tricky, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's probably no right answer. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, think there is. Yeah, yeah. I think that I. I personally like, uh, I don't know metric wise if it's good or harmful, but I personally, whether it be my studio or a, a game that I, I'm you know, looking forward to or a game that I play or whatever, I, I genuinely like the open communication. Um, I think it's, it's better that it's an open, genuine conversation with the developers, with the PR team, with the community. I think it's, it's, in my opinion, it's a healthier way to go about it. If you do that from day one, and you stay true to it, whether you make the mistake or you do something right, I feel like that is a way to breed um, trust with your community. You know, if you can sit here and be like, yeah, our bad, we messed up, but we've been, you know, talking to you from day one and like, we did this great. We celebrated with you guys on this and then we really messed up here. Like, I think if you're genuine from day one, I think that's probably the best way to go with your community. Yeah. But I think it's tricky. I think there are, yeah, and it's hard too because sometimes you want to be open. You you do. I I think there are certain instances where a studio wants to be open with their community and can't, and you have to draw that line because even even if you are even as crafted a PR statement or genuine or authentic a statement is, mm-hmm. and you have to hold something back, it comes across like people people can read between the lines. They can know. Um, and I think that there are instances where it's actually it would be more harmful to be completely open. Um, I think that I think that there is a certain, like Bagel said, it is tricky, and there there's there's a certain balance uh, to strike between the two. But you should never you should never be dishonest. Um, you should never raise the expectations beyond what you can actually deliver. Uh, and that's a hard, that's a trap that a lot of people fall into. I fall mm-hmm. into it. Studios fall into it. Um, I've fallen into it with Dev Dive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I think completely open communication would be more harmful than would be more harmful than good. I think that um, being being too open um, breeds a certain amount of ambiguity that people will read into that there's nothing like originally meant for that uh that can be harmful so i think more direct communication is definitely like direct honest um and straightforward communication is probably the better way to go instead of saying open communication yeah but that's again that's that's my own thought (laughs) yeah you know what i mean uh you want to address the issue you want to talk to them about it you want to be honest about what you're doing but sometimes giving them all the information in the background will actually cloud the issue distort the issue or cause the focus to be on something else yeah so um 
Support Carthus is asking the real questions, by the way. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> That's why we do. That's why we have this part. Um, so, so we gotta. Um, we can we can wrap up this part. If you had anything else to add, uh, feel free. But we don't have too much more to talk about. Um, after we finish up talking about the communication thing, is there anything else that you guys wanted to cover before we wrapped up? I think I've said my piece for the most part. Right. Uh, no, I, I think looking back at our, you know, uh, aspire, we talked about aspiring artists, the difference. Uh, I mean, we could kind of get into it. I think we talked about it a little bit. Um, but just because it's something that I would like to hear you describe, Bagel. What's this? What's the difference between when someone says they're a hard surface modeler? Mm -hmm. What's that mean? And why is it different <laughs> than other 3D modeling? That's not self-explanatory? I mean, you'd think it would be, but I'm just saying <laughs> just in case. <laughs> so a hard surface modeler, to put it very plainly, is a inorganic modeler. Um, nothing living. To, oh, so they're dead inside. I guess it's a, it's a catch-all <laughs> sort of... What's that? They're dead, <laughs> they're dead inside. I bet it's like, ah, so they're dead inside. <laughs> they're dead inside. <laughs> Not what they work on, just themselves. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of a catch-all. When you talk about an environment artist or a weapon artist or a vehicle artist, it's kind of a catch-all for uh, anything that kind of lumps into that, you know, metal, rock, uh, material that's not living sort of thing. So they could be a hard surface artist, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're a vehicle artist because I could work as a hard surface artist and work on a robot that's a character. I could then take that same skill set and I could work on buildings in an environment. Um, so hard surface artist specifically means they have the tools and trades for focus on um, a specialty of inorganic. So how would you describe the difference in skill set between hard surface modeling and organic modeling? Yeah, so different programs that you use uh, for the okay. most part. I mean, both will use uh, a program called ZBrush Sculpting. Both will use Autodesk Maya, uh, Max, um, Blender even. They'll use a polygonal modeling tool. Um, both will use both. However, uh, the techniques behind them are very different. So if I, if I work as a character artist, for instance, um, I'm doing a lot of organic sculpting of characters. I'm doing a lot of like high poly sculpts with like low poly bakes. I'm doing a lot of um, almost predominantly living in that ZBrush sculpting world. If I'm doing hard surface, I have to know how to, um, they call it sub D model, which is a subdivision model technique uh, I, I work in polygonal flow. I work inside of Maya. I work inside of Max. I, I'm making, you know, things out of boxes. I'm making things out of primitives. But then I'm also, on top of that, I'm, you know, making my edge flow and my poly flow in such a way that when I smooth it, it looks very clean. It looks very like a metal should be a metal crisp edge. A rock should be a rock edge, you know. Leather doesn't look like metal. Like I, your polyflow works in such ways that you can tell and read the difference just in the model alone before a texture's ever on it. Mm. So okay. I don't know if that fully answers it, but that's kind of a, a stream of thought. <laughs> I think it. I think it gives enough information for someone who wants to find out more to go find yeah. out more. I think that's the important part. Um, wow, that's really the last question because I just wanted to see how Bagel would answer it. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things that I, 
I, I generally catch myself just saying words and terms that yeah. the person outside of the 3D world will have no idea what I'm saying. I'm like, oh, right. you know, a hard service model subdies. They yeah. just subdue model. And it's like, I, I don't know what that <laughs> means, dude. <laughs> And just to and just to backtrack a little bit, whenever you said primitives, I was like primitive primitive shapes. I know what you're talking about, but we're talking about squares, spheres, cones, yeah, pyramids, uh, nothing, yeah, very basic shapes that you pretty yeah. much learned in second grade. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. All right, so to cap things out, um, what would you say your personal favorite thing about being a 3D art designer or a uh, environmental artist is? the idea that i get to put something on screen and actually see it come to life i that was like the thing that drew me in when i was you know really young and it's what draws me in now the fact that whether it be a movie or it be a game i I can make something and in a game world i can put it into the scene and i can run around it and see it physically there Um, obviously physically in the game but just getting to experience that like idea that you place that into the world and now you get to like kind of experience it um i've always kind of liked that i, I don't know it, it's kind of cheesy but it's it's really the honest truth nice yeah, very yeah. Cool. so this has been andrew bangle he is a 3d environmental artist over at treyarch he spent the better part of an hour and a half talking to us about his craft and a little bit more about the basics of uh how a game studio actually works and how they, they sort of interact with their communities. So we get a lot of good stuff out of that. Um, if you want to check out some of his work, he's an art station over at artstation.com slash Andrew Bangle. And uh, he has a, a defunct Twitter of at AJ Bangle as well, but maybe he'll start that up eventually. I say people um, can uh, tweet me there, but I generally miss it. Yeah. <laughs> if you had um, any questions, we'll be sticking around after the end of the stream for a short Q and a, but then we'll be, uh, finishing up because TSM is playing soon. I want to watch uh, that. TSM. TSM. I think I actually got the time wrong. I think they already played, but I can I can watch the game later. Oh no! Did we miss? <laughs> okay, we can watch the bot. Right. Yeah, not at all. Thanks so much uh, for watching or listening to this episode of Dev Dive. Um, if you're listening on one of our new available platforms such as Stitcher, Anchor, or Pocket Casts, or maybe soon to come in the future, uh, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Thank you so much. Um, Maybe leave us a review or or a question on what you want to see next, and uh, we'll see you in the future.